Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, or if not quite across, then from center left to center right. I am Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. I'm also a syndicated columnist, and I'm joined by Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, Bill Galston of Brookings and the Wall Street Journal, and Damon Linker of The Week. Welcome all. The past week has seen the start of Donald Trump's impeachment trial in the Senate. House managers led by Adam Schiff have presented facts amassed during the House's investigations. And um, as the Bulwark's Kim Whaley reported, uh, this has been supplemented by facts that have come out more recently, disclosures from Lev Parnas, from the Office of Management and Budget, uh, from the uh, FOIA requests, from organizations like Just Security, and from the Government Accountability Office. Though the rules stipulate that senators must remain silent during the proceedings or risk imprisonment, Republican senators have chatted, worked on crossword puzzles, dozed, and in the case of Rand Paul, held up cutesy little signs saying things like SOS or these are not my parents. Joe Biden made clear that there will be no witness trade that is, neither he nor his son Hunter Biden will agree to testify at the impeachment trial in exchange for John Bolton's testimony. Also this week, the New York Times announced its editorial endorsement for the Democratic primaries, or did it? Hillary Clinton waded into the Democrats' internecine quarrels, telling an interviewer that nobody liked Bernie Sanders and accusing him of sexism. China quarantined an entire city in an attempt to control the new coronavirus, and President Trump said in Davos that fixing Social Security and Medicare would be, quote, the easiest thing if you look at it. All right, let us begin. <laughs> yes, laughter snorting is completely called for. <laughs> um, it's just like he was going to balance the budget in eight years, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right, um, so let's begin with impeachment. Um, I guess we could start with uh, the standard that the Trump administration, the Trump lawyers are upholding. Their standard says that the president cannot be impeached unless he has committed a specific crime. Linda, you want to weigh in on this well, one? Well, I am going to weigh in, and I beg your indulgence, but because I don't have enough to do in my life, I started a book club last year, and one of the things that we've been reading in the last book that we read was George Orwell's 1984. So just indulge me for a second. Some of you may remember the term doublethink, so I'm going to give you what George Orwell has to say. Doublethink means the power of holding two contradictory beliefs in one's mind simultaneously and accepting both of them. To tell deliberate lies while genuinely believing them. To forget any fact that has become inconvenient and then when it becomes necessary again, to draw it back from oblivion for just so long as it is needed to deny the existence of objective reality and all the while to take account of the reality which one denies. All this is indispensably necessary. Have you ever heard a better definition of what is going on among Republicans in the United States Senate? I mean, it is absolutely mind-boggling. I, I just, I'm almost on the point of tears listening to them talk. Um, and defend what is indefensible. The um, president's counsel, Cipollone, well, uh, stood in the well of the Senate and said that um, Republican members of Congress had not been, been permitted into the skiff. This is a flat falsehood. Lie, a lie. It's a lie, yeah. Um, but... That's where we are. Um, so, uh, so Damon, uh, this week the um, National Review uh, ran a an interesting editorial uh, by the editors saying that the uh, Republican position was 
absurd that they were they had had painted themselves into a corner. They said because of Trump's obstinacy and being unwilling to acknowledge that he did anything wrong, um, they're denied the out of being able to say, well, of course, we don't approve of what the president did, but it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. They cannot do that. And so they wind up saying things that are ridiculous, such as uh, the president can only be impeached for a for a crime. Uh, your reaction? Well, first of all, it, it obviously is not true that you have to commit a crime to be impeached. That's very clear, although I, I hear that Alan Dershowitz is going to, to stand up in the Senate and try to make that argument uh, in the next few days. That'll be uh, enjoyable to watch, but it's absurd. Uh, any Really, anything can be an impeachable offense if the House believes that uh, that it is and they vote that way. I mean, it's a judgment call. It is not a legal standard in the same way that criminality is. So that's that's ridiculous and just sophistical, uh, sophistical ruse trying to give an out to the president as they are wont to do. And I agreed with that National Review editorial. I actually hadn't heard about it or read it. Uh, uh, at least I'll uh, assert as much here as I say that I wrote a column making a similar point a few days ago that the problem that we have here is that that the president is insisting not only that uh, the senators, uh, the Republican senators, acquit him of the impeachment charges, but that they positively affirm the equivalent of Trump saying that the call to President Zelensky of Ukraine was perfect. Mm -hmm. he, he wants complete exoneration of everything. And the really the only thing that I think is in doubt at this point is whether he will win that. He clearly is going to be uh, acquitted. I think that's really not even in doubt. It's somewhat in doubt whether Mitch McConnell will allow uh, evidence to be entered and uh, and uh, testimony witnesses to, evidence. to come in. Yeah, <laughs> What's evidence. That? That's I mean, not the I, way we do things here in Alice in Wonderland land. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, it's not clear whether that will happen. I don't think it will, but we'll see. The, but the thing that really is an open question, and I do think matters, is the question of whether people like Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and others who you would think might be on the fence about convicting will in fact acquit and then give Trump what he wants, actual statements indicating not only did, did this not rise to the level of removing Trump from office, but actually he did nothing wrong at all. His call to uh, Zelensky was perfectly lovely, wonderful, perfectly within the bounds of what a president can and should do as president. And if he can get that, that's, I think, far worse than if uh, an acquittal is combined with statements to the effect of, well, you know, uh, this this was not good. Trump did not uh, did not do what he should have. No president should do it. No president in the future should do it again. Presidents do not conspire with and seek to extort foreign leaders in order to cheat in a domestic election. And uh, so he it was a terrible mistake. However, does not rise to the level of removing from office, especially in an election year. That if if we get some statements like that then I guess I can go away feeling like this was not a total travesty. Uh, but if they give him, if they give Trump what he wants and issue him verbal exoneration, then that maybe was a total waste. So, um, Bill, I want to hear you on, on this subject too, but I'll just interject a couple of things that have been uh, just eating away at me as I've been <laughs> listening to this all week. Um, one of them is um, the idea that, uh, the, the sort of the Dershowitz standard, okay, that you have to have committed a crime. Now, there are a couple things to, to say about this. First, this is Alan Dershowitz in 1998. Quote, 
If you have somebody who completely corrupts the office of president and who, who abuses trust and who poses great danger to our liberty, you don't need a technical crime, unquote. That's Dershowitz, okay? Here was Alexander Hamilton discussing uh, the grounds for impeachment. He said, the misconduct of public men, in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. Okay, and you have the fact that over the years, first of all, when the language of high crimes and misdemeanors was entered in the Constitution, there was a certain uh, common law understanding of what that meant going way back hundreds of years in Britain, and it included all kinds of malfeasance, <clears throat> not just uh, uh, not just crimes. And in our own country, I mean, judges have been impeached for being drunk. Uh, that is not a crime, but it is grounds for impeachment. Um, <clears throat> so this is an absurd absurd argument. And as is this argument about, oh, we'd be overturning an election. <laughs> the fact is, who would become president if Trump were removed? It would be, obviously, Mike Pence, not Hillary Clinton. It does not overturn the the uh, 2016 election. It is perfectly constant. And let's see, one more thing and then take it away. Um they even had the audacity to say that this is unconstitutional, that the impeachment itself is unconstitutional. That one, that's that's chutzpahdik, as we say in my faith tradition. Uh, it's in the Constitution, just as Donald Trump is president, even though he didn't get a majority of the popular vote because of the Constitution's uh, electoral college. Similarly, he's being impeached because the Constitution permits impeachment for uh, malfeasance in office. Take it away, Bill. Well, the wonderful thing about my center-right colleagues on this podcast <laughs> is that it's, it saves me a lot of time and breath. <laughs> so, you know, let me let me uh, let me take the same topic in a slightly different direction yeah. uh, and put some hot off the press evidence on the table just to illuminate what's going on. Uh, the Pew Research Center, a highly respected nonpartisan uh, research uh, outfit, came out with its comprehensive impeachment poll yesterday. Mm -hmm. And here are some selected outtakes. Uh, only 12% of Republicans believe that the Senate should remove uh, President Trump from office. But 32% of Republicans believe that he has probably or definitely broken the law, from which my fourth grade math tells me that 20% of the Republican Party believes simultaneously that he's broken the law and should not be removed from office. Double think. Uh, now, by the way, that's not an entirely incoherent position, right? Because I can, I can think of laws that people could break and you know, as president, uh, and still not have met the impeachment impeachment standard. But sure. but to put this put this in perspective, six in ten of the Republicans who believe that he has probably or definitely broken the law do not believe that the Senate ought to remove him from office. Uh, and not to put too fine a point on it. I think the basic message, and I can understand this in the highly polarized circumstances, is he's our guy. Mm -hmm. We don't really care what he has done. We're sticking with him. Uh, and that's where we are as a country. I am not entirely convinced that if the shoe were on the other foot in three or four years, that uh, my party would behave completely differently. I wish I could be confident of that. I'm not. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and so, what's going on with this impeachment, the Senate trial, is the symptom of the disease that our political system is suffering from. It's not the disease. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very, it's a very dramatic symptom. Uh, I have, you know, I have a bet with a Brookings colleague of mine that I am pretty sure I'm going to win, uh, that I will buy her dinner uh, if 
more than three Republicans vote to remove Mr. Trump from office. She'll buy me dinner if it's two or fewer. I think you're safe. And uh, I think you're safe. <laughs> you know, and and you know, and, and it's a draw if it's three. My real belief is that the right number is zero. Yeah, yeah, I zero. Agree. Absolutely yeah. right. What do you think, Damon? Yeah, that sounds right to me. Zero. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's possible that Joe Manchin might flip in the other. Oh, that's, yes. That's, yes. That's, yes. That's, that's, that's entirely that's the, possible. That's not yeah. what the yeah. vote is about. That that another, bet is about another bet. Yeah. Or and what maybe possibly Doug Jones. Well, maybe. maybe. Although yeah, many people true. think that Kirsten Cinema is more likely mm-hmm. to vote to acquit than Doug Jones. Yeah. For mm-hmm. all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, but you know, I mean, I think Bill is absolutely right. And I, I wasn't really being fatuous in, in quoting Georgia Orwell because the way in which democracy is eroded is not, you know, by a revolution. It's not uh, somebody coming in and conquering us and and taking over. It is by this slow erosion of democratic values. And I think that's what we are seeing. And it is so disheartening to me that Republicans who, Mona, when when I became a Republican, you were a Republican, I think, before I was. But, you know, what attracted me to the Republican Party was that this was a party that believed in the rule of law. They believed in the supremacy of the Constitution and interpreting the words of the Constitution in their plain meaning in English and not in some, you know, later uh, version of what words mean or meant uh, at the time. And now we were against those living constitution. Right. Folks. <laughs> yeah, we were yeah, we were not all in favor of that. and And there was this sense that, It mattered. The principle mattered. And what I see now is members of Congress, including people with whom I'm, you know, I I don't necessarily share even their moderation. I'm a conservative. I keep saying that. I have a hard time convincing people of it these days, but I'm a conservative. And, And what I find so distressing is that the job of being a United States senator matters more than principle. I have never had a job in which if my principles were challenged, I wouldn't walk away. And I have walked away when my principles got challenged. I do not understand this. I do not understand being unwilling to stand up to Donald Trump and saying what you did was wrong. You have endangered our country. You have besmirched uh, our, our values. And they're not willing to do it. Well, I think I've commented, perhaps even on this podcast before, that there is a reason why Profiles in Courage is a short book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, so one of the things, Damon, that, that you hear a lot is, um, you know, certainly from the Republican side, as you say, you hear people worrying that you know, this impeachment will weaken the presidency. And... I find myself wondering whether that wouldn't be a damn good thing. Uh, We have a presidency that is way too powerful. We have courts that are arguably too powerful because we have a legislature that has been surrendering its power uh, at a prodigious rate for for decades now. what do you think? Well, so so there are a number of things that may be consequences of this impeachment that may have brought certain tendencies to a head. And so one of them is, and this I worry about, um, is that we now have um, perhaps made impeachment a dead letter, made it toothless. Because I do agree with Adam Schiff that if this isn't impeachable, uh, it's hard to imagine what would be. And more than that, beyond the particular misbe- uh, misconduct by Trump in this instance, the arguments that are being made on his behalf that he can do anything he wants or that any kind of an impeachment is illegitimate because it overturns the voters' wishes, um, it means that this is yet one more check on executive authority that will no longer have any force. 
Well, I mean, we are 200 odd years into the American democratic experiment, and we have yet to remove a president uh, by impeachment. So I, I would say that it could very well be either that our presidents are, are very upstanding individuals and uh, there's never been anyone worthy of such a punishment, or it could be that on this, the founders made the, the standards a little too difficult. I yeah. mean, at the other extreme, you have system, parliamentary systems in which the executive is basically just a, a, an element of the legislature. It's just the prime minister or whatever party is either in the majority or uh, the lead party in a coalition government. And there can be a vote of no confidence or the government can just fall. And then there's another election called and there's no independence, whereas, or at least not the same level of independence. Here we have this independently elected uh, person who is the president and those founders set up this very arduous process that we're going through now and we see how difficult it is uh, to get to get 67 senators to agree to remove the president when at least in uh, all of our lifetimes on this podcast there has not been uh, a situation in which uh, you could imagine that kind of a lopsided uh, split among the parties in the Senate. Uh, and then could I so, I I'd actually yeah. I, I'd actually suggest that that even though he resigned and wasn't technically impeached and removed, Nixon's was it right. was an episode of an impeachment being successful. I agree. Yeah, yeah. he w well, he would in fact of, have been convicted. Yeah, well, and, but, and, right, it, it, yeah. but it didn't go very. Far. I know. It never because, even got underway. Because so there was a threat that it would happen, and therefore he resigned. Yeah. So, but it was that, a re very credible threat. <laughs> Otherwise, right. he would have held on. Yeah, he would have held on if he could have. And, and, you know, for, for all of his flaws, and he certainly had many, um, at that moment he acted and behaved in a way that helped protect the country. Mm. Yeah. The, but to pick, to, to pick up on Mona's point, uh, I do think that, that the deeper question is the extraordinary expansion of executive power which did not begin with this presidency, but God willing will end with it. But in order for it to end, Congress is gonna to have to revisit about 50 years of legislation and rethink it from top to bottom. Uh, to start, we've given the president an extraordinary panoply of emergency powers. Yep. More than 125 separate grants of emergency power, some of which are quite dangerous mm -hmm. as we're discovering. We have given the president extraordinary discretionary power in the area of trade and trade negotiations, mm -hmm. you know, so that you know the threat of tariffs can now be picked up and wielded like a shillelagh at the will of one man. I could go on. You know, yep. The use of military force abroad, uh, the ability to reprogram funds that were not right. appropriated for specific purposes by the legislature. Okay. I could go on. Wait, wait. This is called beg to differ. So I think it's only right that I interject and say Barack Obama did a number of things. Mona, I know you agree with I this. Said, I know, yeah. I said <laughs> that it didn't start with this presidency, right, right, but right. God willing, we'll end there. Right. Look, yeah. look the, the. Well, it won't end there with the, with the current crew of, of Democratic. Nominees well, or, okay. or you know, well, potential nominees. We, I don't think there is a big difference among the range of potential Democrats. Well, we're going to talk about the Democrats okay. next. Let's okay. finish so, on impeachment. Okay, first. but but I but I think that uh, I think that there is a chance if this turns out to be a near death experience for constitutional democracy in the United States. Perhaps in the next few Congresses, there will be a will to revisit the, you know, the reckless surrender of congressional power that has occurred in the past half century. Uh, and because nothing else will do at this point. Mm. Any future- Can I, uh, can I jump in on this one? Yeah. I'm gonna add one extra point. Yeah. Um, I would, as you said, Bode, in the spirit of beg to differ, one nuance about uh, the impeachment and how it's unfolding that I think plays into this theme is, you know, Adam Schiff gave a very compelling, powerful about uh, 
couple hour long uh, beginning of the House manager's case on Wednesday of this week. And although there were really compelling things in it, I think it was a mistake for him to emphasize as much as he did the Russia angle and the fact right. that what Trump did was that he kind of undermined uh, the policy of of the administration to uh, you know go toe to toe with Russia and Putin and stand by Ukraine's side. Now you can agree that uh, that this that this is the proper policy of the United States, but the impeachment should not be framed as about a policy dispute. Completely agree. It should be about the fact that Trump tried to cheat in a presidential election by extorting a foreign leader by using aid as as uh, as the tool of extortion and. And uh, so the fact that he did that is going to open the door to the to the Trump administration's response to say this is, in fact, an impeachment about the discretionary judgment of the president to make foreign policy. And although I agree with all of you that that the powers of the president should be reined in, uh, it should not be reined in by impeaching a president because you disagree with his conduct, conduct of foreign policy in a particular case. Yeah. Well, but, in the, I, but in this case, in, in this case, I think it's a lot simpler than that. Uh, and that is that the president of the United States demonstrably did not have the legal power to withhold those funds from Ukraine. That's true. And by the way, that gets back to, I'll let you finish, but that gets back to the point we raised earlier when we were talking about how you don't have to have committed a crime to be impeached. But it But helps. it <laughs> is a crime, actually. I mean, right. It did break the law, at least may not be a criminal offense, but it, it did violate the law about the impoundment of funds for him to withhold that uh, congressionally and, and by, mandated And by the way, money. those anti-impoundment laws were passed in the immediate wake of the Nixon, Nixon administration. Exactly it right. was the right. Congressional Budget mm-hmm. Budgeting and Anti-Impoundment right. Act yes. of 1974. So this goes right to the heart yes. of the last serious effort to rein in the powers of the president. And but, I was going to say that was really one of the very last efforts to do so. I mean, we we to, as, to as, rein in the president to rein in the president. Yeah. And um, but. I, I agree with Damon, though, very much that uh, the Democrats take a wrong turn, which they've done consistently when they keep talking about how he endangered national security and that sort of thing. He was he was, uh, you know, uh, not helping Ukraine as mm-hmm. if, you know, tanks are going to roll into, you know, Berlin because of this or 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 you know Bangor Maine or something i mean that's not what's at stake here and that's that's a um that's a misdirection it seems to me yeah. i i agree with i agree with damon about about that um <clears throat> but mona don't you i mean part of the problem here is that you do have these 24 hours you have to fill um no, you don't. <laughs> well, you don't have it's to. It's a correct, ceiling, right? not right. a floor. Says, oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but they're going to take every minute. And, you know, it's not clear to me who their audience is. And, you know, there's been a lot of criticism by the Republicans of, on the repetition. Well, my sense is that they are not, they're speaking not so much to the senators, even the four possible senators who might vote, for example, to hear witnesses, as they are trying to speak to the American people who they think maybe now we can get their attention. And nobody's going to sit the way I mean, we do. I was up till 2 a.m. the other night listening, but I don't think there were very many Americans are. So my sense is one of the reasons they're doing the repetition is because they know that people are going to be listening in snatches. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you do the repetition. It's like the way guys, you know, companies put ads on. They don't put the ad on once a day. They put it on several times, the same ad, so that they hope to get a portion of the audience. And so that is part of what I think they're doing. I, I agree with you, Mona, that that sometimes they get off on a sidetrack and sometimes they do things that are counterproductive. I think when Nadler, you know, started accusing uh, people of, you know, lying. And there, there is a kind of decorum in the Senate that they should observe. And they should probably not accuse people whose votes they need of being part of a cover-up. So, mm-hmm. you know, they've done some things wrong. But by and large, I think they've let 
laid out a pretty compelling case. They've brought in evidence. They've uh, highlighted points of the testimony that most Americans did not see during the House impeachment uh, inquiry. And so, you know, I, I think they're trying to to reach voters, particularly independent voters, because they, he is going to be acquitted. There's no question about that. And it is going to come down to the election in November, and hopefully well, they will have undermined. Uh, on the subject of the audience, um, <clears throat> uh, Bill mentioned the Pew survey. <clears throat> it also showed that a majority of the American people want to see Trump convicted and removed from office. Well, 51%. Um, 51%. Yeah, a narrow very majority, narrow, but right. still majority. Um, <clears throat> and it is quite possible, it seems to me, that... Um, that this does damage the image of Republicans in a way that it might not have if they hadn't taken such a hardcore stand that they are indifferent to the evidence, that they right. just don't care. Whatever it is that the evidence shows, they don't want to hear it. They're not, they're, they're, they're utterly unmoved by it. That isn't a good look. It's it'd be far better for them politically, it seems to me, if their view was, well, you know, of course we don't approve of strong arming our allies and he shouldn't have done that. Uh, he should apologize, whatever. But uh, but to say we we just we're indifferent to the evidence, our minds are closed. I don't I don't necessarily think that redounds to their electoral benefit. I agree. Do you want to? We shall we shall see. As of now, the needle of public opinion has not budged, and mm -hmm. the latest Pew survey confirms that. Right, the president. You know, the bottom line: the president's job approval rating has not moved since September, despite everything that's gone on since September. And so, you know, I agree with you. At this point, the principal jury has to be the American people. Uh, but how many jurors out there, public jurors, citizen jurors, are there who haven't already made up their minds? Yeah, I just I don't know, but. I think it's pretty clear that it's a smaller fraction of the people than the optimists might have imagined. Yeah, it's probably true. Although, you know, you hear somebody like Senator Kennedy from Louisiana, you know, who seems to be hearing some of this stuff for the first time. And I, I think I mentioned the last time I was on the, the podcast that I had been up on the Hill and visiting senators' offices. And to a person, their aides, you know, maintained that they had not had the time because they're busy people and had their own legislative priorities to sit and listen to everything in the House uh, impeachment inquiry. So, you know, conceivably, even some of the people sitting in the chair are have been told one thing. And if you fo watch Fox News, you get an entirely different version of reality. And some of them are hearing some of these things, I think, for the first time. So maybe so. But to repeat, only 12 percent of Republicans yeah. think that President Trump should be removed from office by mm -hmm. the Senate of the United States. It will take... Though 32% believe he did something wrong. Well, yeah. yes, but that's... Yeah, but the Republicans are a smaller and smaller portion of the population. It's really independence that we have to be worried about. And if 12% of Republicans voted against uh, Donald Trump next time, he wouldn't be reelected, I don't think. I'm not sure. I'm not it sure. It depends which states. <laughs> well, it, right. It does depend on which states. And, and yeah, and there are Democrats, obviously, who are supporting him. But yeah. So I'm not... I'm not I am really not convinced that more than a handful of Republicans have any political incentives to break ranks. Yeah. And, and if you're at the very end of your political career and you're writing the last line on your tombstone, like Lamar Alexander, mm -hmm. uh, who's a decent man uh, and certainly not part of the new Republican Party. He harkens back to an older tradition. Uh, one might ask, what does he have to lose? Now, there's an answer to that question. Uh, and that is that when Bob Corker was asked back in Chattanooga why he didn't go harder at Trump, with whom he disagreed about many things, uh, he said it's very simple. You know, I want to be... Re received by my folks back in Chattanooga when I go home. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So there's a social dimension to this. You don't want to be blackballed. 
Yeah. Ha- having been blackballed yeah, many times been. in my life, it doesn't matter to me. Um, by the way, though, I, I have to give Corker credit because he had some he had some stinging one liners. Oh, Even if he didn't go as hard at Trump yeah. as you say, he still did. He did say that the White House was an adult daycare center at one point, which I thought was rather a good line. Mm-hmm. That is a good line. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, Those were the good I had days. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I remember one time I was listening to C-SPAN. I was driving somewhere and I heard a, somebody was clearly, you know, had been or was a senator saying some terribly harsh things or what sounded like harsh things about the president. And I thought, who is that? Who is that? Who's that voice? Because it can't be a sitting senator. And sure enough, it was an ex-senator. It was Corker. But okay, well, so now we turn to the Democrats. Uh, is it Bernie v. Biden? Uh, the l- latest polls uh, seem to say as much. Uh, Damon? Well, I, I don't know for sure. None of us do really. Although it does seem like the scenarios at least begin with one either or. Either Biden turns out to do better than he seems like he's going to in Iowa and New Hampshire, in which case Biden will lock things up pretty quickly because he's very much in the lead in South Carolina and in a lot of the states to follow that. And on the whole, Biden continues to poll pretty strongly on a national level. On the other hand, if Biden comes in second, third, or if you can believe it, fourth in Iowa or New Hampshire, um, if one of the Democrats, uh, one single Democrat does quite well in both Iowa and New Hampshire, then you start to unfold a scenario that is much more like a free-for-all over the coming states with then Michael Bloomberg kind of waiting in the wings for Super Tuesday, where he's sort of putting all his chips down with huge ad buys in California and other places. So it really is unsettled. I mean, for the last few months, I've been sort of singing the the, the Biden song, saying, well, you know, He's the guy who's been in the lead all this time. And just like in 2016, people didn't think Trump would be the nominee. And yet he was leading and he won. I thought it was probably going to be Biden. But Sanders appears to be surging here at the end. And and if he puts in a good showing in these first couple of states, it's going to change the way things unfold uh, over the coming weeks after that. So I really don't know. And I'm I'm feeling a little unsettled about it, I have to say, because uh, I think Sanders as the nominee is uh, not a great thing for anybody. Yeah. Now, Linda, the uh, of course, the, the Democrats assign uh, delegates differently from Republicans. With Republicans, many of the primaries were winner-take-all, so Trump could sweep up a lot more delegates by just being the first to cross the finish line. Um, it's not that way for the Democrats. Everybody accumulates proportional shares. Um, but uh, but still, it does look that look like Bernie is surging. Um, and uh, this week we had Hillary Clinton uh, weigh in because everybody felt like we weren't hearing enough from Hillary Clinton. Um, and uh, she said that he was, uh, first of all, she said no one liked him, uh, which is funny coming from her. But anyway, she <laughs> she's likable said, enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but she also said that he was a sexist. Uh, so what, what was your reaction? Well, you know... I have a, um, a very eclectic family, um, a broad family, not my immediate family. But, you know, this, this week I've heard from both my youngest uh, eligible voter and my oldest uh, eligible voter in my family, and they're both Bernie fans, and I find that mm. very scary. Um, I do think that Bernie, um, if he is the nominee, Donald Trump will win in a landslide. I mean, I... I will say that definitively. Uh, there is no way that Bernie Sanders is going to become president of the United States. I just don't believe it. Um, and people like me will not, I won't vote for Bernie. I will not vote for Trump, but I, you know, I, I just won't 
I'll do what I did last time. I'll, I'll leave the top of the ticket blank. So I think it's a real danger for the Democratic Party. Uh, I have to say that my own preference would be for Bloomberg to emerge if if Bernie continues and Biden continues to to fail. And I don't Biden's think, not failing. I should. He's not. He's not he, failing. But I have to tell you, I thought his look in terms of saying I won't testify, I won't honor a subpoena, essentially, is what he's saying. If I were uh, asked to testify before the Senate uh, on the impeachment, I thought that was a really bad look because I think... Didn't he back away from he that? He took it back. Yeah. He took it back in Well, hours. I know, but today yeah. he's... Uh, I mean, yesterday, again, he said he didn't want to be part of a swap and there was no way he was going to participate in this. Well, that's so. different. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. different because that wouldn't be... You know, that's well, not a subpoena. I know <laughs> it's not a subpoena, but so. you know, if 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 in fact they were a swap, and I guess Democrats are backing off the. But I, you know, I think people would like. There are some people who would like to hear more definitively from Biden on I did not, in fact, protect my son or or actively try to get him this job. I mean, I you know, I understand his reluctance because it's a family issue. But uh, given what we're dealing with right now, I-, I just would like to hear more. And it just makes him seem weaker than I think he needs to s- to see. So I- I'm I'm pretty pessimistic right now. I I think the Democrats are doing everything they can to to lose the next election. Well, we're at a point in the cycle uh, where nobody knows anything seriously. Uh, we're going to see a turnout in the Iowa caucuses that I think by at least 100,000 will be larger than we've ever seen before. And that's on a base of 200,000. Mm. In my mind, the only question is whether turnout is going to go up by 50% or 100%. Mm. Who are those people going to be? Nobody knows. Mm. So I suggest that we hold our fire until the votes are actually counted. And by the way, just to pile complexity upon complexity, for the first time ever, they're going to be vote. They're going to be two votes revealed by the DNC. The first, the raw vote, and then the actual delegate allocation. And those are different because for the 329 million Americans who are smart enough not to wallow in the arcane rules of the Democratic Party, <laughs> there is a 15% threshold. Mm-hmm. So if you go to your caucus in Keokuk or where, mm-hmm. what have you, uh, and your preferred candidate doesn't get 15% of the people who've walked into that room at 7.30 in a minus 60 degree tonight, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> whatever wind it is, yeah. right, with the wind howling, uh, then uh, then you get then your candidate gets no delegates, and then the question is where do you go next? Mm-hmm. Right. If you think that, so nobody knows what the first round is going to look like, and for sure nobody looks nobody knows what the reallocation is going to produce. Well, wait. So you, are they going to release that first um, count? You said the DNC yes. is going to release two sets of numbers. Exactly. They're going so, to release the first one and then the second. Oh, one. okay. So we'll know who got what. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that'll be very interesting information, interesting. right? That's yeah. the first time ever. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, and then... Uh, and then, of course, New Hampshire has the nasty habit, nasty for political <laughs> pundits anyway, of yeah. looking at Iowa and saying, we're going to do something else. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. We're going to assert our flinty independence. Mm-hmm. You know, don't take the Granite State for granted. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, as happened, you know, as happened in 2008, you know, once Obama had won Iowa, everybody was writing off Hillary in New Hampshire. Yeah. And New Hampshire decided uh, not so fast. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I I enjoy punditry as much as the next person. But, you know, right now it's like trying to fly in a vacuum tube, right? Mm-hmm. There's no air to press against mm-hmm. to get off the mm-hmm. ground. So I'm just going to stay stubbornly on the ground. Did anybody have any thoughts about the New York Times Pseudo endorsement, I will call it, where they they they, they're politically correct. They endorsed um, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar and said, "May the best woman win." And and their description of Elizabeth Warren 
was the most backhanded compliment I've ever seen. I mean, they really listed all of her weaknesses, and <laughs> I mean, it was quite amazing. Well, anybody else? I, I just I, I found I found the sort of gratuitous. You know, we have to you know give some support to women candidates. I, it just it it seemed totally politically correct. I mean, you know, I I, I didn't like it. Well, I have it. Was, yeah, go on. Go ahead. It just it was a very odd evening because we're at a point in kind of the history of journalism where you would think that this kind of thing, a kind of unsigned editorial endorsement would be like the least relevant or interesting thing out there. And yet the Times turned it into this whole media uh, media event with just tweets going out and all the journalists I follow tweeting about it. And then there was a hour long FX cable show showing them interviewing the different candidates and deliberating about it and then to have the at the end result be this sort of like well we're <laughs> sort of not going to decide this and we'll, you know one will be the moderate the other one will be the more radical liberal <laughs> and they'll both be women and so like you can't get mad at us because we didn't actually decide <laughs> right. anything it, it was a very strange performance I, I don't really know what motivated it well but. two things first First of all, I do salute them for releasing the transcripts of the interviews. Mm -hmm. That was you know, that that was useful. I read them very carefully, and I think I learned more from the transcripts than I did from the endorsements. Mm -hmm. Secondly, not to sound too cynical, but I think the double endorsement was also intended to keep peace within the New York Times editorial board. <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, seriously, right. I think That's they right. I think they would probably split right down the middle. Yeah, and that's so probably right. They decided yeah. to have it both ways. Yeah. But, but right yeah. down the middle between those two? Yeah. I mean, why not between Bernie, Bernie and Biden? I mean, yeah. Look, I don't think you have to be crazy to believe that Globachar, all things considered, would be a stronger, quote unquote, moderate candidate than Biden. I don't think you have to be crazy to believe that if you're going to pick one from column A and one from yeah. column B, that Elizabeth Warren is by a considerable margin less crazy than Bernie Sanders. So, you know, once you've decided that it's going to be a Chinese menu endorsement, then <laughs> it all falls into place. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, Damon, can you um, elaborate on your thoughts on the on the whole sexism thing? You know, the the between uh, Warren and uh, and Bernie. Well, it was I, I, it left me very confused for a while. Why? Because this was clearly something that the, the Warren camp orchestrated. They decided they would try to kneecap Sanders by 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 uh, claiming that he had said this thing, which really, if you if you you know put a positive spin on it, really wasn't that outrageous of a claim that a female candidate might have more trouble winning against Trump. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's true, but it, 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 you wouldn't assume that that meant well, Bernie's a closet misogynist, which mm -hmm. is absurd. No, he's not in and, the closet. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it, what it plays into is this reputation of Bernie Sanders supporters on Twitter often being male and being very obnoxious, especially to women journalists and supporters of and, Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton but herself. This, this isn't a real thing in the world. It's a Twitter thing. So then I wondered, well, what what exactly is... is uh, they Warren are pretty nasty, I'll say, by the way. I mean, they, they are pretty nasty, the Bernie bros. Um, they are. Then again, they, yeah, so are the Warren people. So <laughs> go on. Yeah, Everybody on Twitter on is nasty. <laughs> that's true. It's a nasty place. Yes, that's Twitter. true. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> no, but my, my point would be that that I think the only thing I can come up with with a rationale for Warren that makes sense is that she was trying to play uh, a technique that Democrats often do, at least lately have been doing, but in reverse. So the standard play would be for a Democrat to be a little more centrist on economic issues and then to placate more li liberal activists by sounding very woke on cultural issues. So very pro-choice on abortion, very pro-gay uh, gay rights, pro-trans rights now, and all this kind of stuff, uh, and on race and immigration and so forth, and a lot of these kind of social cultural issues. But Warren's position is so left on economics 
that I feel like she sort of, this was her big play to try to kind of grab female Democratic voters who might be tempted by Sanders and prove I'm actually, uh, you know, you can both vote for the very liberal candidate if you're tempted by Sanders, and then I'll also fight the good fight against the misogynist, uh, angry men out there. Uh, something like that which is, so again, sort of the not exactly the same play, but you can't do the same play that you normally see when you're already so far to the left on the economic stuff. But other than that, I don't get it. A lot of my friends immediately said this is going to backfire on her, and the polls seem to be showing that it definitely did. It seems to have contributed to Bernie's late bounce now, and uh, Warren herself continues to kind of slowly sink. So, well, you know, uh, there was, yeah, and and it, there may be the, this one other element of their little battle, and that is that look, um, leaving the sexism accusations out for a second. If you're having a uh, conflict over who said what and what's believable about who said what. It is kind of hard to believe that Bernie Sanders would have said a woman can't be president or a woman can't win. It's totally imaginable that he might have said, of course, you know, if you run, he's going to go after you as a woman. He's going to try to, you know, do, make a lot of, out, of, out of that, which is a different thing entirely from saying you didn't think a woman could win. Um, but further, there's one other element of this, and I don't know how much this plays into Democrats' reactions, but certainly from us Republicans, I mean, we're very well aware that Elizabeth Warren has a little bit of a problematic relationship with the truth. And uh, as much as I don't like Bernie Sanders's politics, I don't think he has that reputation. Um, I don't think he tends to misrepresent his own life or, his, you know, um, in, in major ways, whereas she, you know, as we all know, um, has a lot of issues along those lines. She claims that uh, her kids went to public school when they spent a lot of time in private schools, and she claimed to have Native American ancestry, which wasn't the case. And she, you know, she she does have a tendency to embroider uh, where it's convenient for her. And a lot of people even say that in her academic work, she's been disingenuous. So. Um, when when she when it's a he said she said and the the she in this case has a lot of trouble with uh, honesty. I think that could possibly play into it as well. Well, I look. I think um, Bernie Sanders um, may well have said exactly what you said. Something about it being a little more difficult. I think if we're honest. I think it is going to be more difficult for a woman. I think, you know, the first woman being elected is going to be, it's going to be a hurdle. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't think that makes me a sexist to say that. I think it makes me, you know, aware of reality and aware that some people, you know, are going to have a harder time. And and so, you know. I, well, the irony is uh, that a poll that just came out, a poll mm -hmm. of Democrats, showed that the share of women who think it's going to be harder for a woman to is get higher. elected is twice, twice as high. Twice as high yeah. as yeah. Twice as yeah. high as Well, yeah. maybe because we have some experience well, exactly. knowing yeah. that, yeah. you exactly. know, it's, exactly. some things are harder yeah. for us to overcome. And then, so. of course, there, then, of course, there are the polls that show, uh, you know, the ones that ask, you know, who, who would you be, uh, what qualities in a candidate would persuade you not to vote for them? And a, a woman is, is usually pretty low, 10, 15. 15%, but the highest of all the categories, higher than atheist, Muslim, uh, many other categories uh, that might trigger certain prejudices, is socialist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> listen, Democrats, bear that in mind when you vote in the primaries. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, all right, one more thing on the uh, on the Democrats. The, 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 um, when, when Bloomberg announced his candidacy, we threw a lot of cold water on it around this table um, for a variety of reasons. But it if anybody has some wisdom in, you know, about what he seems to be doing, I'd be curious to hear it because it doesn't look any longer like a vanity play on his part. He is spending all of this money, not against his fellow Democrats, but running ads against Trump. Right? I never believed, I never believed that it was a vanity play. Okay. Let mm -hmm. me just be yeah, clear, all right. clear about that. I believe I said at the time that there is a very narrow path that he has to tread and he's not in control of his own fate. Everything has to break right before the, the votes are cast in the states where he is actually on the ballot. Now, if you tell a story where the first four contests have three or four different winners, mm -hmm. 
that sets up very nicely for him. Uh, but I, th I think, Mona, you've, you've made the most important point. Uh, a few months ago, I was writing op-eds, pointing out that in the 21st century, a standard play by incumbents is to try to delegitimate challengers even before they've delivered their acceptance speeches. And that had worked with Kerry in 2004. It worked with uh, Mitt Romney, Romney. in two mm -hmm. 2012. And the Democrats should think very hard about accumulating a war chest so that they could play both defense and offense uh, in the face of hundreds of millions of dollars assaulting their putative nominee from the Republican Party and the Trump forces. Bloomberg, win or lose, has now nominated himself for that role, and he certainly can bankroll it. Yes, he and, can. and he's doing it very well. Yes, I he am is. very impressed by his ads. I think they are the best ads, political ads on television. The best money can buy. The best <laughs> money can buy. That's right. And, and by the way, he's bumped up to number four in that, yeah. some national yeah. polls. Yeah. And, I mean, and, ads, you know, yeah. and and recently he's been doing all impeachment ads. So mm -hmm. you know, during the impeachment. So I think that's. I think there's something to be said for that. Bill. And there is another very grateful group. Group, uh, in the population, that is campaign workers whose salaries, <laughs> yes, got not only improved. in his campaign but in other campaigns, have uh, doubled. Absolutely, right. hey. it's the market. It's the force of the market. Another needy group gets, gets, gets oh, taken so, care of. So deserving yes. as well. <laughs> I mean, I just I wanted to add that uh, it really is amazing. He's old. Bloomberg has only been in it for a little over two months, and he is now in the real clear politics aggregate of polls at seven. 7.7%, which is tied with Buttigieg. Yeah. And uh, that means he, he is now in the kind of lead, uh, the lead group. He's more than lapping Klobuchar. Uh, you know, if, if he does, uh, as Bill was saying, a lot of things have to fall into place, including the results of especially the first four uh, states to vote, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. But if things end up after those four in a very muddled state and or if Sanders looks like he is really consolidating a true frontrunner status, then Bloomberg definitely is going to be a factor going down the, the pike. And that is going to make things very, very weird. Going yeah, forward. well, but let me tell let me tell you why a Bloomberg nomination would mean big trouble. OK. Uh, you have one of the dominant candidates in the field denouncing billionaires as the devil's work and saying, and I quote, every billionaire represents a policy failure. Mm -hmm. and that's Bernie. That's Bernie. And if Bloomberg is nominated, I'm afraid that almost regardless of what Sanders personally does, there's going to be a break on the left that in any kind of a short election, in any kind of a close election, could prove fatal. So, you know, I, I know the, the standard view is that, well, he'd rally this huge coalition of the center. Maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, but I can I can tell the story a different way that leads straight to disaster. <laughs> well, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, if Bloomberg actually became the nominee, which which really is a long shot still, yeah. but if he managed that. I mean, he really is a liberal Republican. He's like the last liberal right. Republican, which is why I like him. I like him too. <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 I wish he were more conservative. <laughs> I, took, I took the Washington Post had a, a kind of a questionnaire about a week ago where they asked twenty policy questions and it told you which candidates are closest to your own views and yeah. I won with Bloomberg. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, in the abstract, I would be upset by a Bloomberg presidency. On the other hand, I think Bill is right that you would run a very serious risk of the Democratic Party simply shattering and you would get a kind of splinter left-wing yeah. party yeah. Well, that's, as a result. I yeah. mean, a a a AOC in the House, uh, uh, Alexandria uh, 
Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, the uh, very left-wing House member from New York, who's a huge Bernie Sanders supporter, uh, said just a few days ago her own line about billionaires, that no one knows something like, no one earns a billion dollars, you take a billion dollars. Oh, that sake. attitude would, uh, uh, yeah. would be out Listen, there. I don't think she should ever be allowed to order anything from Amazon ever again. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> she feels that strongly about it. <clears throat> All right. Um, <laughs> I don't know. MBS can do it without. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. Just send your request to MBS. He'll take care of it. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we've come to that point in the program where we go around the table and talk about things that we either agree with on the other side or disagree with on our own side or just want to call attention to. Linda? Well, I've been chomping at the bit here, Uh, Mona. You know, the State Department is issuing rules restricting travel to the United States by pregnant women. And they ostensibly are doing this to stop what they call birth tourism. Now, there is a problem with birth birth tourism. There are companies that are set up to try to bring mostly wealthy women from China, India, and a few other countries uh, to give birth in the United States. Because if you're born on U.S. soil, you are a natural-born citizen under our Constitution. But it's not a huge problem. Uh, And if you want to go after that, go after the companies that are doing it. But this provision will have officials who are judging whether or not somebody's going to get a a visa or not. For example, a visa for students or uh, work in the United States, temporary work, are going to look at a woman. And if they think she might have a little thickness around the middle, they can ask her if she's pregnant. And if she says yes, they can deny the visa, and it is almost unappealable. I think this is the camel's uh, nose under the tent to try again to get rid of birthright citizenship. It's a first step. I think it's a terrible step. And I am hoping that it will be challenged and that it will be struck down. Bill. Well, I'm going to cross you up a little bit uh, and do and do what I did in yesterday's Wall Street Journal column and just give a reading assignment for anybody who's interested in understanding why we are, where we are, and why we've been discussing what we've been discussing in the past hour. The 30th anniversary edition of the Journal of Democracy brings together some of the very best people who've been commenting on the rise of populism and illiberalism. As far as I'm concerned, it's required reading. And if and if intelligent people who like to read sat down and read those 100 pages, we'd all have a better conversation. Damon. That sounds like good advice, by the way, Bill. And I'm going to make sure I get my hands on a copy. Have uh, I ever steered you astray? (laughs) No, no, no. You didn't steal my thunder on this case. And I do. uh, I'm an admirer of the journal democracy for a long time, but I haven't seen the issue yet. Um, My uh, selection is is actually by someone who I've plugged before and who's actually been a guest on the show before. Eli Lake has a very long essay in the new issue of Commentary Magazine titled The FBI Scandal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, three years ago, I was very much on board with being very afraid of Russia and Putin and and their role in uh, trying to manipulate and uh, the last election and ensure Clinton's loss and Trump's win and and connections between the, uh, the early Trump administration and Moscow and and so forth. But I have to say that over the, the subsequent years with the Mueller investigation and the Mueller report and a bunch of other revelations, I've become a skeptic about all of this and think a lot of it is is probably nonsense. Uh, there are weird things about Trump uh, admiring Putin as a person, and there might be financial ties between them that we don't know because we haven't seen his tax returns. But that's very different than the level of uh, kind of espionage that was being alleged uh, uh, at the time, and and f- frankly, by a lot of Democrats even today. And Eli's uh, very closely argued. Uh, 
essay is, is a really good antidote to that. It, it sort of is the sane version of a lot of the more hysterical stuff that you see in The Federalist uh, by people like Molly Hemingway, who kind of reflexively defend Trump against these charges. Eli actually brings the the evidence and the receipts, and it it, it should not, I think, leave any American uh, untroubled about some of what the FBI did, was doing, and may still be doing on this matter. Okay. Um, mine is a, um, uh, a memory of my former colleague who passed away recently, Roger Scruton, who was a senior fellow uh, at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, a famous uh, famous intellectual conservative. He was actually knighted recently, so he's, he was Sir Roger Scruton. Um, and um, uh, he he was a, a, a really consummate conservative. And I say that um, because he his conservatism, he would have said, he did say in many of his wor- works, arose out of love, love for his family, for his community, for his country, for the past, for the inheritance that he felt uh, deserved gratitude. And that is such a conservative perspective, and I think it's one that deserves great respect. Um, There are always things that need fixing in any society, but you also need to have those qualities of love and, and reverence for what's been given to you. And what I would recommend for anyone who wants to gain a little sense of what a mind he had, he made a video for the BBC a number of years ago called Why Beauty Matters, and it's available on YouTube. Um, some of the video quality isn't as good as it could be. Some of, uh, some people who are sort of more adept at navigating YouTube may find good ones, but, um, but it's about an hour-long documentary in which he just talks about art and architecture and the importance of beauty. And it's one of those uh, works that gives you a sense of where you are in the in the history of thought, you know, that, that why it came to be that ugliness and degradation uh, became elevated in the art world and even in, in architecture. And uh, what he, you know, his view that this was a terrible wrong turn and uh, why we need beauty and uh, and what it means. So uh, a tribute to Sir Roger Scruton. Again, it's called Why Beauty Matters. Yeah. Uh, on a sad note, uh, the death of Jim Lehrer was just announced. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've, you know, there's been a lot of hand wringing lately about, uh, the state of American journalism, and he is a symbol, I think, of what we've lost. Absolutely, absolutely, agree. Yeah. Um, I was on a panel with him once, and I remember being amazed—not amazed, but I mean, I was interested to learn that, uh, like you, Bill, he had been a Marine. <laughs> and he's, and he's, he was a real gentleman. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. And, uh, you know, yeah. And, uh, and without completely fear or favor. fair, yeah. right down the middle. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he will be missed. All right. Thank you all. Until next time. <laughs>